It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Nico Hines is world editor of The Daily Beast, joins us from London. How are you? I'm well. Good evening. Good evening as well to Swiss uh, journalist uh, Josef Devec, columnist at International Politik Quarterly. Hello. And an author of a book uh, about Emmanuel Macron, the revolutionary uh, president. We'll be talking about uh, him a little bit uh, later on. Uh, Emma Kate Simons, Paris-based correspondent, writes for the news magazine Front Tireur. How are you? Good. How are you, Francois? All right. Oliver Farry was France 24's Hong Kong correspondent until we chained him to the desk. How are you, sir? I'm very well, despite all that. <laughs> all right. The uh, France, uh, the world this week, uh, where you can like, listen, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. Turns out it was the IT guy. Near Boston, the arrest of the sole suspect so far in the U.S.'s biggest data breach uh, since Edward Snowden. Reporters outed Jack Teixeira and even spoke to him before the arrest of the 21-year-old enlistee of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. This master of Minecraft allegedly started sharing stuff from the office way back in October. And it's only in the past months that classified documents started popping up on Twitter and Telegram before the world and the U.S. Defense Department first became aware last week. Au cœur de cette fuite massive, des informations cruciales sur la situation. We do have stringent guidelines in place for safeguarding classified and sensitive information. This was a deliberate criminal act, a violation of those guidelines. Nico Hines, take your pick. Is it the profile of the suspect that's fascinating or the fact that such a big data breach could come from such an unlikely place. Yeah, well, I think what's so incredible is that it seems as though, unlike a lot of the previous uh, breaches that come into this sort of category, you know, we think of WikiLeaks or the Pentagon Papers, this was basically almost an accident. This kid was trying to impress his mates in the Discord channel um, who weren't paying enough attention when he was sharing gossip he'd heard from behind the scenes. So he started escalating, giving more information. When people didn't pay enough attention, he started putting photographs of what he'd seen in the office on the channel. And it seems as though they had been there for months. I think the latest report today suggested that he had been posting secret intelligence in this group last year. And nobody had noticed because this, like, two dozen or so people in the group, um, I don't know whether they didn't really believe him that it was real intelligence or they just didn't really care because they were more interested in gossiping and sharing memes and taking the mickey out of each other. So we've got this extraordinary situation where incredibly damaging information. And if you put it into context with those previous leaks that I mentioned, you know, those were papers that were, yes, highly um, secret and really important and have shed historical light on certain events. But generally speaking, they were published years after the event. Um, and therefore allowed us an insight that we didn't think we would have got. These documents are weeks or even months old and are basically showing us the live thought process inside the White House, inside the Pentagon, inside the intelligence agency. Inside the intelligence agency. Oh, dear. Seem to have lost the connection there uh, with Nick Hines. We'll try to uh, patch that up uh, ASAP. Yeah, those documents posted to a private chat group called Thug Shaker Central 
It's for people who play Minecraft, which is a video game, on Discord, which is a server for gamers. The documents were often listed as Ukraine versus Russia at first. However, it slowly spiraled into just intelligence about everything. Yeah, that, 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 that uh, gamer who was on Thug Shaker Central, uh, uh, underage, and uh, therefore we don't, we don't see uh, his face. How 21st century is this story, Josef Devec? Well, there have been a lot of cases of, of leaks uh, in history, but, um, but this is kind of exceptional because it's really going out into the internet and everyone can see it. And it's not only about the war between Russia and Ukraine. There are lots of other aspects to it as well. We learn, for example, that Serbia provided weapons to Ukraine, although they say they were neutral. We learned that uh, Egypt was thinking about providing weapons uh, to, uh, to Russia, and Egypt is an ally uh, of the U.S. We learn all these kind of different things that the U.S. continues to spy on, on allies. Um, and it's, in a sense, fascinating if you look at it as a journalist, because you can see sort of what is happening beneath the surface uh, in, uh, in real time. But, but at the same time, it's just obvious that the timing of this is, uh, is a disaster. Uh, Ukraine is supposed to launch its, its uh, spring offensive and everything is going out in the open. It's, it, the jury's still open as to whether or not uh, this uh, is a disaster. I'll give you one example, M.A. Kate Simons. Um, the U.S. C- caught with these documents spying on South Korea. And yet, later in the week, South Korea approves... Uh, loaning the United States ammunition. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a an open secret that everyone's spying on each other and they know already that like, this is news for journalists and for the general public, but not at all for various governments. But what it is, as you pointed out, is a huge embarrassment. It's lucky for President Biden that he's in Ireland at the moment and the focus can be on something else. But clearly there have, there has, the heads must roll because if, if this information can come out so easily and frankly can be so damaging, I mean, what is happening at the Pentagon? What else will come? Uh, what, will there be another gamer quite soon? Oliver Ferry? Yeah, it's, it, what is particularly interesting is that um, the, the number of people that seem to have this sort of security clearance, it was quoted as upwards over a million. And that's pretty astounding that they're obviously not all on the same level, but it's pretty astounding that all... When, when there was Cablegate, uh, after the, the big WikiLeaks data dump of 2010, 2011, the complaint was that a lot of these classified documents weren't all that classified and that uh, too many documents are listed as classified. Now it seems to be kind of the reverse, what you're describing. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, uh, this is the flip side of the classified documents um, that a number of people such as Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Mike Pence have had legal difficulties with because there were so many classified documents found in their offices or at their homes. Donald Trump's uh, case seems to be probably a little bit more serious than Biden and Pence. But these are instances where um, probably so much is classified at this stage that they're not taking any chances, whereby they're actually probably giving way too many people clearance that gets them into into proximity to these documents. And uh, we're not terribly sure if there's, if there's a huge amount more from this leak out there. But we can tell that the person that leaked them is definitely, well, obviously not, not a professional, not a mastermind, and actually wasn't even terribly tech-savvy either because he was caught out by a, a little bit of open-source intelligence 
due to the, um, the, 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 the pattern on his parents' table or uh, countertop. So it's, it's definitely something that we don't know really uh, how much more is there, but uh, there possibly could be, because who, who, who else could be doing this? As you said, they've been, they've been hanging around since October, and it is also something very, very contemporary, is to sort of carry out clandestine illegal uh, activity on chat rooms like this, a lot of jihadists have done it in the past 10 years as well. Uh, Anders Bering Breivik, the, the Oslo uh, shooter, also did the same thing. So uh, you, you do wonder, is there more out there? All right, the, the U.S. Uh, flatly denying the presence of any combat troops on Ukrainian soil. That was one of the claims inside these leaks, outside of its own embassy grounds, it says. That didn't stop Fox News' star talk show host, Tucker Carlson, from running with the claim. Um, he said on his show Thursday night, the United States is a direct combatant in a war against Russia. As we speak, American soldiers are fighting uh, Russian soldiers. And that's kind of the line we're hearing uh, from from the Kremlin, Josef Devek, uh, 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 as well. So these leaks will uh, be uh, used and misused. Yes, these leaks will be uh, used. Uh, they will be instrumentalized. Um but the thing is why I think the jury is not out anymore if, if these leaks are devastating is that everyone now sees that to some extent you can't trust the U.S. and you can't trust the U.S. security, security services. And their job is to get information. Their job is to be also trustworthy with the people they work with. And sort of the damage of credibility that has come with this is something that is incredibly difficult to, re to, to repair. If you think about it, if you're in contact with these security services and you know that just some random guy uh, who's, uh, who's working you know, in the U.S. doesn't have a very high-profile position, gets access to pretty much everything, you, uh, you get scared. And I think that is the thing that is very difficult to, uh, to undo, this sort of loss of trust. Putting superpower showdowns and security breaches aside for a few days, as Emma Kate was saying, a president of the United States for whom 10 of his 16 great-grandparents were Irish. Joe Biden's tour of the Emerald Isle, taking him this Friday to County Mayo uh, and the uh, town of Bellina, where one of his third cousins works as a plumber. On Wednesday, it was County Louth, another family stronghold just over the border from Northern Ireland. It was in a pub that the teetotaling uh, Biden uh, hailed another cousin, Rob Kearney, part of the Irish rugby team that beat New Zealand's All Blacks at Chicago's Soldier Field back in 2016. We take great faith. In the closing comment I make, you see this tie I have with the shamrock on it? This was given to me by one of these guys right here. <laughs> was a hell of a rugby player, and they beat the hell of the black and tans. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but it was when you were at a, a soldier field, wasn't it? Chicago. Chicago. Uh, Oliver Ferry, tell us, who were the black and tans? Well, the black and tans were a group of uh, demobilized uh, British soldiers after the First World War that were used for... Uh, exactions on civilian populations in Ireland during the... Uh, so he meant the to say the All Blacks. Yes, he meant to say the All Blacks. The Black and Tans 
Uh, I wouldn't say it's an easy mistake to make, but it is probably in certain circles in Ireland that black and tans does trip off the tongue. Was the laughter you heard embarrassment or uh, mirth at reading what was really on the mind of the US president? It's probably a mixture of both. I mean, certainly nobody in Ireland uh, was outraged by it, which is what Fox News said the, the other day. People found it quite funny. The black and tans themselves are already part of a sort of a strange subculture of humour in Ireland that, um, depending on your political point of view, is, you know, a little bit disrespectful or it's harmless transgression, mainly on the part of younger people. So he sort of stepped inadvertently into a, a meme, so to speak. And and one one thing I particularly liked was the name of the pub that he happened to be in when he said this was The Windsor, which is a very, very <laughs> nice uh, post-colonial touch. Yes. Uh, before the Irish Parliament in Dublin on Thursday, uh, Joe Biden uh, playing catch up. He's not one to be ruffled by gaffes. Uh, he even seemed to play on the moment. But I always have a little bit of Ireland close by, even when I'm in Washington. In the Oval Office, I have the rugby ball signed by the Irish rugby team, the ball the team played when they beat the All Blacks in Dublin <laughs> <laughs> and he, he clenches a fist there because uh, he got it right. The all blacks. That's how he got it right. That's how he got it right. But I think you can see Joe Biden there having the time of his life, also avoiding the coronation of Charles III coming up soon. And we were talking a bit before, but the, the reaction of the British press to his visit has been absolutely scornful and over the top, particularly in some sections of the British press. But actually uh, quite shocking because... Uh, bring out, wheeling out all these sort of uh, anti-Irish, anti-Celtic <coughs> stereotypes, the cartoons of Joe Biden dresses a leprechaun, dancing a jig and drinking a pint of Guinness, uh, the kinds of uh, cartoons you could have expected in Punch or in, you know, the 19th century caricatures of the Irish. So I think there's a lot, we were talking also about the fact that with Brexit, there's, a, there's almost an envy and a fury at Ireland having remained in Europe. And uh, at seeing Biden, um, you know, paying so, so many accolades, so much pleasure being there and not being there for the coronation of the new king. <laughs> Nico Hines, uh, tell us about uh, the coverage of uh, uh, Biden's homecoming to uh, where you are and also over in the U.S. where they may not know necessarily, sorry to say this, who the all blacks are. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not sure this uh, black and tans, all blacks joke is really going to travel in the US. So I don't think he needs to worry about backlash back home. And of course, I think one of the reasons that the Irish found it so funny, and of course, the Irish American diaspora would also probably find it funny if they are following along, um, is that his remark was that the black and tans have been getting a good beating from the Irish. So I think whoever it was, whether it was on the rugby field or historically, it goes along with Biden's line, which is to kind of amp up his you know, real, genuine um, ancestral links to Ireland. And he's said many times before that he grew up with a kind of Catholic Irish background. And I think people in Britain and in London here um, do see that and, and do accept that basically, you know, and I don't think this is a conspiracy theory. I think Joe Biden does have a side in that in that debate, and I think he's made that quite clear. When he was um, in Belfast, uh, Nico, he, anybody seriously? He, when he was in Belfast, he did sit down uh, with uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Uh, he, 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 that relationship was poor when Boris Johnson w w was the was the Prime Minister. There is a feeling, though, that it is improving. <laughs> 
Well, look, anyone's easier to get on with than Boris Johnson in some senses. <laughs> you know, he, he's a much, Rishi Sunak is a much more serious and uh, plausible prime minister of this country. So in that sense, he is much easier to get on with. I do think there's something, you know, we mentioned, you mentioned Brexit earlier there. And I think <clears throat> there's a big hangover here because one of the things that really stung the Brexit supporters during the referendum was when Obama came over and said that Britain would have to get to the back of the queue to get a new free trade agreement with America. And that has indeed come to pass. You know, we're years in now and there's absolutely no sign of America doing a new free trade deal with the, with the United Kingdom. Um, so we have lost out um, because of Brexit to that. And I think as a result of that, those pro-Brexiteer politicians, so we're talking about the Conservative Party that's in power in Downing Street now, and we're also talking about the DUP, the Unionist Northern Irish politicians who are also pro-Brexit. Those people are very bitter that America has not leapt in and uh, rewarded newly independent Britain uh, with a fresh trade deal. And for that reason, they also feel this kind of bitterness towards Joe Biden, which has not been helped by him laughing up with all his ancestors uh, just over the way there. Joseph Tavek, uh, MK talks about, you know, he goes to Ireland, doesn't go to the coronation. Um, yes, I mean, Biden has been pretty clear, I think, where he stands on, on Ireland, that it's important to maintain the peace, uh, peace there and that he has a sort of personal vested interest in it. And I think if, if one thing is underlined by his visit is just how an exceptionally great president Biden has been for Europe and the European Union, in a sense. He's really uh, a president that knows Europe very well, who has family links there, he has traveled a lot to Europe. Um, he knows the issues and it's something that we can't take for granted at all in the future anymore. Um, having a President Biden, you know, who's deeply invested in, in Europe, in NATO, in Ukraine as well, it is really with this moment you kind of see maybe that sort of, uh, you know, maybe that's history. Maybe this is the last moment of having U.S. presidents that are so deeply involved in Europe. Speaking of presidents uh, who may or may not change the course of history, in France, a nation that grants outsized power uh, to its uh, uh, leaders, con the Constitutional uh, Council was the place everyone was watching this Friday to settle the argument over an unpopular pension reform that was railroaded through Parliament last month. In the end, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, bill was mostly approved, much to the dismay of those, as you can see here, rallying outside of Paris's city hall. Those are the Olympic rings, yes, in the background, uh, the uh, French capital to host the games uh, next uh, summer. And uh, now the unions have rejected, uh, Emma Kate Simons, a, uh, um, an invitation by the president to meet them next Tuesday and they say the struggle continues. They do, and so does far-left leader Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who tweeted exactly that tonight. Uh, but I think that there's, 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 there's quite a lot of a sense of uh, a kind of fatigue of weeks and mo even months of strikes. And so I think that this is a kind of, it's still a bit of a compromise. There's been six elements that have been removed by the Constitutional Council, but Macron has... One, in the sense that his core reform of raising the retirement age from 62 to 64 remains. But it's true, I think we're going to, I think we can see the images, have quite a bit of violent protest. But it's, it's, it's a small core of people who are violently protesting or even violently destroying public property. There were far fewer people on the streets 
this week on Thursday. There was so, still a lot of And there's people. holidays coming soon, and the, the holidays are sacrosanct for the French. There's the spring <laughs> holidays, spring school holidays. So will that kind of mean it will die down? Oliver Ferry, has Emmanuel Macron outlasted his opposition? Um, it's, I'm not terribly sure. Emmanuel Macron um, may have sort of uh, had his last hurrah with this, so to speak, because it possibly might be just biting off a little bit more than you can choose. So he's got four years of his presidency left, but he might actually be left in the strange position of being uh, simultaneously a lame duck president and also unassailable. And he managed to, to get this uh, law through uh, using once again uh, Article 49.3 of, uh, of the Constitution. Effectively taking the bill and turning it into a vote of confidence. Yeah, exactly. It's it's something, it's a quirk of, of the presidential system of the Fifth Republic that uh, you can actually do that. But it's not anything particularly authoritative either. And there's nothing unconstitutional about what he did. There's nothing illegal. But you've got still got a substantial amount of the population, 65 percent, who are, who are opposed to this, and that includes a lot of people who might not necessarily be particularly radical in their politics. So he might actually find it hard to uh, get any anyone on board at a later point. He's probably won the battle on this one, but to get anyone on board uh, at a later point for any other reforms that actually might be more important and more significant than these pension ones. And usually French presidents don't discuss domestic politics while they're abroad, but it was impossible on Wednesday to avoid while on a state visit to the Netherlands, what with the rest of Europe wondering about, you know, the the garbage piling up in the streets of Paris, the police violence, uh, and a reformist leader's ability, as Oliver Farry was saying, to reform. Look, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely no, normal in uh, in this period of time to have this type of reactions, and our societies are very much anxious, and we have a lot of debate being mixed uh, everywhere. So, I'm sure that we have our responsibility is sometimes to take decisions and bold decisions in the interest of our people for today and tomorrow. If I understand that correctly, Josef Devec, he's kind of saying my way or the highway. As I mean, this is, has been now the story uh, of this pension reform, and, uh, and I think he, he had his way, uh, more or less. Probably he wanted to be even more ambitious, raise uh, the pension age to 65, uh, but he got 64. The, the thing I worry about, in a sense, is I think these protests will die down relatively quickly, um, but this whole episode will sort of leave a deep scar in sort of the French... Um, collective memory. It is a moment where in reality the French realize that the president has enormous powers and he can push through a law like this and where they start to doubt whether they're living in a, in a, in a country where sort of the majority of the people and their views are being respected. And there's another moment in French history where this kind of happened that a majority of the French were in favor of something and the president went the other way and that was 2005 when the French voted uh, against the EU constitutional treaty. And then two years later, nonetheless, Sarkozy came and more or less put it in place uh, still. And that was sort of the moment when especially the far left started to rise and pick up uh, because they were making this argument, we're not living in a country where sort of the vote of the people is being respected and the views. Of course, the polls suggest that it's the far right that's been yeah. the big winner. Marine Le Pen's yeah. jumped 
10 points. And she said uh, her, her, after the announcement by the Constitutional Council that uh, uh, the fight is uh, not over. I don't know exactly what that means, but um, she's in the position where she's against the pension reform, but when Emma Cape was describing the violence, on the side of the police. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, she's been the big winner of this. Um, but it is this argument that she's making that the people are not being respected. And that is what is worrying. They can make this argument in the next couple of years and they will continue to do it. And then the other question is, yeah, what will Macron be able to do in Parliament in the future years? Uh, it will be much, much more difficult uh, than previously. Nico Heinz, uh Emmanuel Macron has been a, a, a darling, you could say, of liberals across the continent. Uh, and, you know, he goes to the Netherlands this week, which is uh, the, the place, I guess, where the whole concept of liberals, uh, liberal democracy was perhaps even invented. Uh, and, and yet even there, he's called out on, on what's going on in France. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's one of these strange uh, dichotomies with Macron this, in the last few days. He's been touring the world, making big pronouncements, which have not necessarily been popular in, for various reasons. Um, but he doesn't actually have the support of his own country back home, which always undermines a leader. You know, it's, it's, it's all very well trying to represent, you know, the whole of Europe or give big contro controversial views. If you're not supported by the streets back home, um, you're working can sometimes sound a bit hollow. I do think this win tonight for Macron is short term. Obviously, I'm sure they're celebrating. Um, but I think it could well be a loss for him in the long term because the fact is this is now going to be something he owns, one of the most unpopular policies to be forced through by a French president in recent memory, and that's going to be his legacy forever now. Um, he's not going to get that back. If, you know, if he'd been looking over at Britain, where we had Boris Johnson and the Conservatives being defeated in the courts, and if you look at America, where it's often been a important and successful political strategy to be defeated in the courts and then to campaign against how your will of the people was overturned or you know that's all that's often been a, a popular way for politicians to get out of actually owning an unpopular policy what's happened now is macron has been it's been waved through and the fact is when this policy comes in people are not going to be happy to be working those extra years and that's always going to be on macron's head. Yeah, there's uh, Macron's uh, pension reform policy at home being unpopular, by the way, for a French president is nothing new. It's standard fare, after all. He failed to garner a majority in Parliament after winning re-election a year ago. But he always remained a darling of moderates elsewhere in the EU, at least until now. In an interview on the plane ride home last weekend from a state visit to China, Macron was asked about tensions with Taiwan and replied, the great risk Europe faces is that it gets caught up in crises that are not ours, which prevents it from building its strategic autonomy. Problem? He was speaking while China was blockading Taiwan for three days of naval drills. Emma Kate Simons, um, it's uh, been difficult for him to roll that back as well. He's been answering questions about it, what, for five days and counting. Yes, since, since he made these remarks on the plane back from Beijing. And really the timing could not have been worse. And 
Evidently, Macron was looking for a diplomatic success uh, to, to try to take the focus away, even domestically, from all of the opposition to his pension reforms. And instead, he got the opposite response. There was an, an immediate, it was almost like a scandal, uh, a, a wave of anger in the United States coming from all sides of the political spectrum, not just from the far right or from senators like Marco Rubio. And then uh, dismay in Europe Except a few days later, you're starting to see that there are some European leaders, including Charles Michel, and I'm sure Macron's not happy about that, Victor Orban, uh, who, who actually agree with his repeated attempts to strike a third way between, uh, you know, Europe and the US, like, and, and on the question of Ukraine and China. But really, on the substance of it, it was not only the bad timing, but he, he, he made an error because... I mean, he, he should have been. I mean, I, I think if you look at the, the former uh, ambassador, U.S. ambassador to NATO, Ivor Dalda, he said that, you know, this is not the time to be talking like this about strategic autonomy, but we should be, there should be a united front uniting the U.S. and Europe against two uh, regimes that are, you know, bellicose and in, in the Chinese sense, trying to actually change the global order away from Western values. Let's roll back a second here, Oliver Ferry. Those drills around Taiwan the Chinese are doing, pretty impressive, a naval blockade of the whole island. Um, in the air, it wasn't as uh, provocative as when uh, Nancy Pelosi visited uh, Taiwan. Still, did, did you have a sense that Beijing was taking this to a new notch? Um, I don't think it's certainly not uh, on the same level as last August, as you said. Um, and it's also something that Taiwan was fully prepared for. Uh, they don't, they generally don't panic about things like this, not at a government level, not at, at, uh, at the people level either. They're, they're well used to it. There was certainly, there was certainly a reaction going to be be taken. But at the same time, uh, China did wait for both uh, Emmanuel Macron and Ursula von der Leyen to leave the country to avoid any uncomfortable conversations before starting these. They also waited for former Taiwanese President uh, Ma Yingzhou to leave. Yeah, so, he would have been on a 12-day visit. That's right. It was an unofficial visit, but it was his first time ever on mainland Chinese soil. So it was significant in that sense. He's also he's a member of the Kuomintang, which is uh, considerably friendlier these days towards uh, Beijing than the ruling uh, DPP and also considerably friendlier than uh, the Kuomintang was for the first 40 years of Taiwan's existence. When, when uh, the German foreign minister uh, came to Beijing on Thursday and Friday, it sounded a little bit like damage control uh, on Taiwan. Annalena Baerbach telling her Chinese counterpart, Chin Kong, that a unilateral violent change of the status quo would be unacceptable for us Europeans, and quote, Baerbach saying, Germany's learned from the mistakes of the past and thinking that trade inevitably brings peace. We just paid a high price for our energy dependency on Russia, and it is well known that one shouldn't make the same mistake twice. Therefore, our economy security is one of the core issues of the China strategy that we are working on at the moment. That's uh, much more forceful than what we heard from, from Macron. Of course, that was a state visit in the case of Macron, but... Your thoughts on, on the Germans, who have do much more trade with China than France, uh, their foreign ministers speaking, talking tough in Beijing. 
Yes, the problem is that Annalena Baerbock uh, doesn't speak necessarily for Germany as a country. She's the foreign minister. She's from the Green Party. The Green Party is relatively hawkish on China and uh, really doesn't believe in the change for trade um, uh, paradigm anymore. It's the Green Party that has learned most, in a sense, and it's ironically the Green Party that is most transatlanticist nearly in Germany now. The thing is that foreign policy is a thing in Germany that is part of the coalition and most often it is the Chancellor that sets policy, especially on China. And Chancellor Olaf Scholz has a very different position on China. He's much more closer to where Macron stands. Scholz himself says as well, we need to have our relationship with China. He says he refutes the notion of a Cold War, of block thinking. So there is a sort of deep sort of... Uh, uh, dispute going on within the German government. And if Annalena Baerbock goes to China and says this, she's also talking to her home community and saying, you know, we Greens, we stand up for Taiwan. We, we are here and we are straight talking. And Schultz is doing something else. So if Annalena Baerbock says it, it doesn't mean that Germany as a country as a whole is going towards this position. And in the past, actually, months, we've always seen that in the end, it was usually Olaf Scholz who got his way. So Macron's remarks, are they going to drive a wedge through Europe or force the Europeans to uh, have uh, to talk more on the same page? Well, I think there are lots of different aspects of this interview that ruffled feathers in Europe. But on the general idea that Europe should have its own kind of, of, of China policy, I think Macron is pretty close to the mainstream all over. Um, Europeans generally see sort of the Taiwan issue much less as a security issue, but they see it as an economic issue. And what is interesting when you hear the remarks of Baerbock as well, she was saying, and she is right, Taiwan is really also a European issue, but she wasn't saying that because of a security reason. She was saying because a war in Taiwan would be an economic catastrophe for the globe and for Germany as well. So, Taiwan, the, 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 which makes what, 50% of the world's semiconductors? Semiconductors, lots of the trade is going through this region yeah. as well. And France is an Indo-Pacific power, yeah. which Macron was obliged to point out after the interview. And I think what was interesting in the interview was also that uh, the story really came out in a quite dramatic way because of the way it was reported in the English-speaking press by Politico. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think Macron really anticipated it, although he has he has form on this. Remember when he called NATO brain dead a few years ago? There was a similar uh, global mm -hmm. reaction. Uh, but then speaking, uh, he was also playing surely to a domestic audience, right? I mean, this is a, tr a classic Gaullist stance to, to, to have a more independent foreign policy and not, like he said, be a vassal of the United mm. States. Uh, but it, 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 comes, it comes weirdly close to the position of people that Macron is to totally opposed to, like Mélenchon and even Marine Le Pen. And how can he expect that he, he didn't, it didn't work with Putin, right, when he went to Putin and tried to negotiate and have dialogue with him on the Ukraine invasion. And now he's asking Xi Jinping to step in and try and pressure you know, Putin and Moscow. I mean, doesn't he realize that it didn't work the first time and this is a risky and maybe even a very weak strategy that Chinese regime only understands force? And then they, what they did was take most of his remarks and use them on their propaganda channels. So I can't see how in any sense it was a success. Are you trying to say Emmanuel Macron has a communications problem? <laughs> well, yeah, he's actually a brilliant communicator, and it's true if you read everything he said in that interview, he addresses all the issues. But I, there's, there's a problem with some of the videos coming out of the Elysee Palace that look like propaganda.
<laughs> one nation that won't be helping uh, Ukraine or pressuring uh, uh, China to uh, lay off anytime soon is Brazil. Its president also in China. And what sounds like the BRICS variant of emerging world giants trying to put the band back together again. Every night I ask myself, why should every country have to be tied to the dollar for trade? Why can't we trade in our own currency? And why don't we have the commitment to innovate? Nico Heinz, did you hear the, the hearty applause there? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's talking, preaching to the crowd there. Um, I think it was very, very interesting to see Lula taking such um, a close uh, and um, favorable view on the kind of Chinese influence in the world. I think one of the most significant things that happened this week was that Dilma, who used to be his chief of staff and who was then his hand-pointed successor as president of Brazil, was sworn in as the head of the this um, new development bank, which is China's, the Chinese-backed equivalent um, kind of rival to the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, and I think that shows just how seriously uh, Lula and Brazil are, you know, becoming um, entwined in this new rival power base. And that was the whole point of the BRICS, which he was a big fan of this um, grouping uh, in his previous reign as president. And Brazil at that point was the kind of fashionable outrider of the developing nations. And of course, interestingly, India is now taken over from China as the world's biggest country. So we've got these growing nations who are flexing their muscles and showing that they're not just going to do what America wants. They're taking the Macron line. Taking the Macron line. And uh, yeah, uh, on the surface of it, it's been a great week for China. Uh, its leader welcoming uh, uh, all these uh, all these other leaders from from around the globe. Um, exports, which have uh, uh, rebounded uh, much faster than thought after zero COVID. But China's got issues of its own. As Nico says, a population whose decline may be steeper than official figures suggest, while its neighbor to the south officially overtakes it as the world's most populous nation. Dateline, India's northeastern Bihar state, this maternity in Bihar Sharif has its hands full in the country's fastest growing region. It's got an average of nearly uh, three children uh, per woman uh, in that in that part of India. That said, Oliver Farry, uh, their population is slowing as well, uh, on the whole, in India. But is China, when you look at the China and India this week, and you look at the at the at the, at the competing narratives there, what are your what's your reaction? Well, with regard to the population, um, <clears throat> India has a slight advantage here, definitely, but it's unlikely to overtake China in terms as an economic power anytime soon. It certainly not in the next 25 years. However, China is very much on the back foot. It's not only is the uh, the aging population a problem, uh, the very fact that they don't really have um, an, enough of a workforce uh, coming forward to basically service what is a very, very uh, young welfare state that only, uh, that only dates back to the early days of this century. So um, there are going to be quite a lot of stormy uh, civil strife ahead for China and 
the Communist Party knows this. That that are you saying they're going to have pension reform protests? <laughs> they would. They will. They might even have a pension eradication protests because their uh, pensions are already very very low in China as they stand, and there might there might just not be any pensions at all. It is very much a Chinese thing for. Uh, for the, the sons and daughters of families and in, in mainland China now, for the most part, there's only one son or one daughter, is to pay back effectively to their parents. You know, they end up giving them quite, quite a good slice of their salary every, every month. So this is something that has sort of uh, kept a lot of Chinese families afloat, but not everyone has that, um, has that luxury, especially if you're a migrant worker living um, like thousands of miles from home uh, in a factory complex, and you only get to see, you only get to visit home once a year, or in in recent years because of COVID, it's once every three years. Emma Kate Simons, uh, is it like Oliver says? It, uh, on the surface of it, it's a great week for China, but there's problems as well. Yes, and there's problems with uh, internal dissent, um, a, a young population that uh, isn't necessarily happy with the repression which is so widespread. And that was another criticism of Macron's visit. There was very little attention drawn to the persecution of the Uyghur and, and other, other minorities. Um, and, I mean, the Taiwanese also pointed out young people and in their press reports that they didn't understand why there could be um, a defence of the sovereignty of Ukraine on the one hand, but, but a, a seemingly ambivalent approach to Taiwan. Um, so... It is true, though, that Beijing is very adept at the propaganda wars. When you look at their Twitter channels, their global television networks, uh, the way they, uh, I mean, it's so aggressive the way their diplomats attack uh, Western and other officials. Uh, but it is concerning that when you see that uh, Lula's uh, rhetoric resembles slightly what Macron said. So mm. this, is, this, is the, this is where I think it's a win for China. And he, he shouldn't have said this at this time. It should have been much more of a unified front. But then I go back to those <laughs> statements by the German foreign minister, that clip we heard. I know she's just the Green Party's foreign minister, mm. according to Josef de Vec. Uh, but, uh, you know, we spent all of last week here talking about uh, these notions of uh, decoupling and uh, de-risking when it comes to uh, how much... Uh, uh, we trade or our, our economies are interdependent with China. And that's kind of what she was alluding to in, in her remarks, that uh, the world as it goes forward won't be as global as it is right now? There is an argument to be made. But if you look at sort of the stats, you, you see that sort of globalization is still happening. It's changing shapes. Um, but, uh, but it is still there. I think what we're talking about, this de-risking agenda, and it's funny because at the beginning it was a French idea, you know? If we look at sort of who was, uh, you know, the one initiating all the sort of EU laws, toughening of trade policy towards China, it's a certain guy called Emmanuel Macron. He was the first uh, basically to say that Europe should protect its strategic industries, should uh, you know, go further in industrial policy, should have, for example, a foreign direct investment screening mechanism. France is, when it comes to this, in complete alignment with that, and even at the forefront in Europe, and quite in alignment with the US on this de-risking strategy. Now, it's funny, Germany is slowly starting to buy in into this, but they have a lot more de-risking to do, and I think it is, uh, it is the right strategy. It's not about talking about deglobalization. That's wrong. It's also wrong to talk about decoupling. We don't want to live in a world where 
blocks are isolated, like they were in the Cold War, where practically the economies were completely separated, the societies as well. That's not what we're looking for, but just reduce vulnerabilities in, in key sectors. And this is the sort of fine uh, line that we have to walk in the future. Uh, the dust has not settled yet, Nico Hines. First we had COVID and now uh, the war uh, in Ukraine on this idea of how interdependent we should be. Yeah, that's right. And we have to accept that the global marketplace it has become very unified in terms of, you know, like we mentioned, the semiconductors in Taiwan. It's weird how little pockets of, of the world are responsible for certain things and they all feed into the same global um, patterns. But that's very different to finding yourself entirely dependent on a specific nation, which, of course, is what has happened with the Russian oil and gas and Europe realizing that they need to make sure that Putin hasn't got his thumb over the hose um, sending our most important resources to us. And so the same mistakes don't need to be made with China. But that doesn't mean to say that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's quite, um, I think, Macron's had quite a bizarre week, really, when you think at the very same time that America is bailing Europe out of its own security failures, for him to be on the world stage saying that we won't necessarily back America's security priorities um, does seem somewhat backward. And I don't think uh, any little trade agreements with, you know, these French business leaders that he took over there with him are going to make up for the unity and the um, alliances that are needed on a global stage. All right. The heat is on both domestically and abroad for the French president. Nico Hines, many thanks uh, for joining us from London. I want to thank Emma Kate Simons, Joseph Devec, Oliver Farry. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week.